Today's podcast is brought to you by the letters A and B and the number three. Welcome to the QuackCast, a skeptical and sarcastic evaluation of quacks, frauds, and charlatans. This week I'm going to cover the influenza virus and its vaccines. This is brought to you as a side project of Pusware LLC, the publisher of the Persiflager's annotating compendium of infectious disease facts, opinion, and dogma. Your uber hyperlinked electronic guide to infectious disease at pusware.com. We will also find the CME accredited Persiflager's infectious disease podcast. References, as always, are at quackcast.com. My .mac folder contains the mp3s of this file instead of the enhanced podcast that you'll get on the iTunes site. I have a bit of a bug this week. It always happens. I did not feel a cold coming on, so I took some airborne, and of course I got the cold. No, I got the flu. Let's talk about the flu. Now, this podcast is a bit different than prior podcasts in that I'm going to cover the myths that surround influenza and the influenza vaccine, since, at least in my mind, the vaccine is not a form of quackery, although this may not be in the minds of others. Some of this has been covered in my interview at the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, which I commend to your listening, but I have my reasons for repeating myself, not the least of which is laziness. My main job in life is Chief of Infectious Diseases and Infection Control for Legacy Health System, which sounds impressive until you discover that I am only one of two infectious disease docs in the system and my colleague doesn't want to be the chairman. It's easy to be king when you live in a country whose population is two. But every year, flu season rolls around, and every year we try and get our staff and patients vaccinated. And every year I have to hear the same old song and dance about why I don't need to get the vaccine, or this employee should not get the vaccine. But this year I can really make them suffer by suggesting they listen to this podcast. Vaccines and their efficacy is not a pretty topic. The studies are hard to do, the vaccine biology and response is messy, but I'm going to assume that you know a borough from a borough and are smart enough to learn the details of the topic, and as a result, this year I'm not going to have to listen to the same old BS about why you should not get the vaccine. But first, influenza. There is influenza A and influenza B. That's it. Well, there is an influenza C, but it doesn't cause much in the way of active disease. So we have two letters, A and B, one-thirteenth of an episode of Sesame Street. You can deal. There's also, as a rule, two strains of influenza A and one strain of influenza B circulating every year. This year it's influenza A, called H3N2, and influenza A, H1N1, and an influenza B virus. So two letters and the number three. Simple. One, two, three, A, B. I almost have a Jackson 5 song here. Now, there are strains of influenza for each animal. There's pig influenza and human influenza and bird influenza, etc. Influenza strains tend to only infect their natural hosts. So, as a rule, pig flu infects pigs and bird flu infects hmm, birds. So, that seems straightforward. And this has to do with the fact that the receptors in the animal to which the virus binds are usually very specific to that animal. Most animal infections don't easily jump to a different species. So why then do we worry about avian influenza, which, by the way, is an influenza A, 
This is because, as of yet, the bird strain does not easily infect humans. Again, that's yet. That's mostly because the receptors to which bird flu binds are only found deep in, in human lungs and therefore cannot access the tissues to get the infection started. So, unlike human flu, you have to really suck in a wad of bird flu to get enough down your airway to start an infection. So far, but avian flu continues to mutate and becomes closer and closer to potential infectivity for humans. But back to human influenza. If you think human reproduction is sloppy and out of control, you haven't been paying attention to the world of the virus. Viruses proliferate at rates that boggle the mind. An active case of influenza, for example, produces more than 7 million viral particles per mil of snot and mucus. Give a cough or a sneeze and those go spewing out into the air where you can suck them into your lungs. That's billions of viral particles in one person over the course of the disease. Think of the genetic variation in 6 billion humans. Think of one person with 6 billion viruses. Think of 20% of the world getting the flu. Attack rates are usually on order of 10 to 20% in the flu season. That's a lot of virus and a lot of sloppy reproduction and a lot of chance to mutate. Mutations occur in the DNA, which then result in altered surface proteins, and those make the virus change. Now, immunity to influenza is determined by antibodies to two proteins found on the surface. One is called the neuraminidase, and the other called the hemagglutinin. Because of changes over the flu season in the genes of the virus, the neuraminidase and hemagglutinin proteins slowly change so that at the beginning of the flu season, the virus is different than the one you end up with at the end of the flu season. And this is due to the slow accumulation of mutations. You'll hear, for example, that the vaccine has H1N1. Well, the H that you hear is the hemagglutinin type and the N is the neuraminidase type. But every year, due to random mutations, the H and the N can change, and as a result, last year's vaccines may not cover this year's strains, or perhaps only provide partial protection. It is one of the reasons, just one of the reasons, that you need a new vaccine every year. Unlike hepatitis A or chickenpox, you've had those vaccines, right? No? Good. My eldest is approaching college age, and I need income to pay for their tuition. The fewer that are vaccinated is better for my financial situation. But the immunogenicity of influenza changes every year, so the antibody against the current strain of influenza is not as good with each passing year. And it takes time to make a flu vaccine. Every dose is made from a chicken egg. One dose, one egg. If you want to vaccinate everyone in the United States, you have to have 300 million eggs. And not just any egg, it has to be just so, so that they can be inoculated to go the virus. And there is one poor chicken who has to lay all these eggs. Poor thing. If it succumbs to avian flu, well, I hate to think about the consequences. But as an aside, there is no bird more susceptible to death from avian influenza than the chicken. So, if the avian flu sweeps through our chicken population, we'll have no vaccine chickens, and then, voila, no vaccine. So it takes time to lay all these eggs, grow up the flu, make the vaccine, Add the thimerosal so we can keep the autism rates high. Oops, I shouldn't have said that. But it takes time. And so what the powers that be do, at least those who are not killed by VOCA. Now there's an obscure reference. Anyone? No looking it up on the internet. That's cheating. But the powers that be have to guess which strains will be in 
circulation and thence put them in the vaccine. Now, they do a good job every year, but due to the changing genetic make of the virus, obviously they cannot choose perfectly every year. So the vaccine from year to year will have variable effectiveness in preventing influenza, and the vaccine will likely be less effective at the end of the flu season than at the beginning. And how much varies from year to year? See, I told you this was messy. But wait, there's more. Not only does influenza drift, and that's the small changes seen in the flu season due to changes in the genome and hence the surface protein, but it can shift. Shift? You don't give a shift? You should. Unlike most viruses whose genetic code is usually one long piece of RNA or DNA, the genome of the influenza virus is a series of segments. Segmented DNA. Now, it turns out that influenza virus can occasionally infect pigs, and avian influenza can occasionally infect pigs. So what happens if a human and avian influenza both occur, say, in a pig at the same time? With reproduction, the virus takes some DNA from the human influenza and some from the bird influenza, and voila, mix and match the poo-poo tray of genetic reassortment. You have a whole new strain of influenza, one that has now acquired DNA that codes for proteins that are usually only effective in animal disease. Now, this happens occasionally. The last time we had this major shift was in 1919, and it killed about 4% of the world's population in a year. 80 million people, is estimated. Compare this to World War I, which killed 28 million people in four years, and the slaughter of World War II managed to kill about 60 million soldiers and civilians. We still can't outkill a virus with all our technological prowess. They have reconstructed this influenza from the corpses of people who died in the 1919 pandemic, and it had a brand new bird-derived piece of neuraminidase. So the community at the time had zero immunity or cross-immunity to this particular strain of virus. This is why ID doctors, that's infectious diseases, not intelligent design, fret about the avian flu slowly working its way across the world. Not only is it evolving so that the vaccine we are making now may not be effective should the virus jump to humans, but that jump when it happens, or if it happens, has the potential to kill 2 to 4% of the world, which is pretty impressive when you have 6 billion of us wandering around. And if it doesn't happen now with this strain of avian flu, it'll happen eventually with some other strain of avian flu. History of infectious diseases always repeat themselves. Note that this topic is only understandable if you understand the basics of evolution. Infectious diseases is at its heart applied origin of species. You can't believe an ID and understand ID. And remember that the bird most susceptible to dying from avian influenza is the chicken. And where do we get our eggs for our vaccine? That one poor little chicken. When she goes toes up, well, let's say that 11 herbs and spices will not be enough to assuage my sadness. Mmm, chicken. Back to the vaccine. So there are a lot of reasons why the vaccine may not have perfect efficacy. The strains used in the vaccine vary from moment to moment and year to year, and the vaccine is a best guess. But there are also human reasons why the vaccine may not be perfect. You get the best results with vaccines in the young and the healthy, but the older you get and the more medical problems you have, the less likely you are to have a good response to the vaccine. If you happen to be a 95-year-old AIDS patient on chemotherapy for your lymphoma and dialysis, 
you can pretty much predict that your response to the vaccine will not be all that good. And then there is your immune system. You are not the same as me, for which I am sure you are grateful. But your immune system is not the same as my immune system. Variability is the clay upon which evolution works. And differences in your genes, called polymorphisms, may make you less able to immunologically respond to vaccines and perhaps the virus. So getting the vaccine may not work for you, making it all the more important that others get the vaccine to cover your sorry butt. And there are two other issues to consider with vaccines, the effect on the individual and the effect on populations. Bugs need a critical mass of susceptible people to spread through a population. If enough people are immune, then the infection can't spread. And so while the vaccine may not take in your grandmother, it may take in you. And if you don't get the flu, you can't pass it on to your old granny who may well die from the flu or its complications because it's usually the old and infirm who die from influenza. Now you may hate your old granny and are only nice to her because you expect to inherit her millions, not realizing it's all going to her dog. But you will not know that until the will is read. So you may want to get the flu and pass it on to that old biddy. But I want my dear old mother, not to mention my parents, to live. And I don't like inadvertently killing people. Well, I don't like killing them advertently either. But I get the vaccine every year the day it comes out. And the vaccine works. It prevents disease and death and is cost-effective. There are too numerous to count clinical trials to show the efficacy of the flu vaccine. The CDC site has a nice summary, although there are still unanswered questions with the vaccine. It is as well studied as any vaccine and is effective. Especially, and its best effect is probably preventing death of people who are older. As to kids, who cares? Our current president just vetoed a child health care funding bill. And one way to cut back on Medicare costs is to not let kids grow up to be eligible for Medicare. So with that background, let's look at the crap, crap, crap that I have to hear every year about the vaccine and influenza. Now, I'll say up front that if you are allergic to the components of the vaccine, you should not get the vaccine. Duh. But allergies are about the only reason you shouldn't get the vaccine. Number zero. I've done some coding in the past, so I like to start with zero. Flu ain't no big thing. It is a big thing. In a good year, only 30,000 extra people die from influenza and its complication. And as mentioned above, in a bad year, like 1919, it killed 600,000 people. That's U.S. population, not worldwide. Now you may say to yourself, no way, 30,000? I don't see that many people die. Well, that would be about 300 extra people a year in the Portland metro area, which would be about three a day in flu season. Now go look at your obituary column. See how many people die every day? A lot of people die every day, and a couple extra a day would barely be noticed. And they may not die specifically of the flu. The flu can lead to secondary bacterial pneumonias, or they may have underlying heart or lung disease, and they can no longer manage the physiologic stress induced by the illness, and they die. And it is a miserable illness. People use the term flu quite liberally to describe any mild illness. There is, for example, no such thing as stomach flu. Influenza is a disease with high fevers, a terrible cough where you feel like you're trying to give birth to your spleen by coughing it out, and your muscles ache like you've been pummeled by a ball-peen hammer. You will be in bed for a week and out of work for two. 
If you ever get the real flu, influenza, you will never call the too numerous to count piddly little upper respiratory infections the flu again. Number one, I never get the flu, so I don't need the vaccine. Basically, these slackers have been sponging off the rest of us. You are relying on herd immunity, the fact that if enough people get the vaccine, you are protected so it can't spread. Basic selfishness. But if you get it, and it only takes 100 viral particles to get influenza, not only will you be sick, but you'll pass it on to someone else who's at higher risk of death, like your dear old granny with heart failure. You want a killer? Well, you might if you don't get the flu vaccine. Although people do not realize it, this is a fundamentally selfish reason for not getting the flu vaccine. Number two, the vaccine causes the flu. It does not cause the flu. The most you'll get is a sore arm for a day or two, maybe a little fever. Certainly much less of an illness than the flu. But it's a killed vaccine. It's killed. It's dead. He's passed on. This influenza is no more. He has ceased to be. He's expired and gone to meet his maker. He's a stiff, bereft of life. Rests in peace. If you hadn't put him in a syringe, he'd be pushing up daisies. Its metabolic processes are now history. It's off the twig. He's kicked the bucket. He's shuffled off its mortal coil, run down the curtain, and joined the bleeding choir invisible. It's an ex-influenza. There's no way a dead virus can give you the flu. A dead virus cannot cause infection any more than a dead human can come back and feast on the brains of the living. There is a live attenuated virus that you can snort up your nose. It cannot cause influenza either, but it can give you a stuffy nose. You poor little baby with your little stuffy nose. That's so sad. You know, I spend all day in the hospital taking care of acutely ill patients, and I do not have a lot of sympathy for people who whine about the minor slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Number seven. I get the vaccine, but I get the flu anyway. Maybe. The vaccine isn't perfect, unlike me, at preventing disease. It's... Success rate for prevention is 60 to 80 percent or so, depending upon the patient. As mentioned above, the worse the immune system, the older the patient, the less effective it will be in preventing disease. But if you get a partial response to the vaccine, it may not prevent disease, but it may prevent you from dying should you get the flu. So sometimes having just a little bit of immunity on board is enough to make the difference between living and dying. There are three benefits from getting the vaccine. It may prevent you from getting the disease. It may prevent spread to other people. But it also may prevent you from dying of the flu or its complications. So you get the disease and you're less likely to die. Hmm, that seems to be a pretty good thing in my book. This week there was a brouhaha about MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, in the newspaper. And we could be heading for a perfect storm as one of the important causes of post-influenza pneumonia is staph aureus pneumonia. And we currently have a staph, that MRSA, or MRSA, which I hate to say, circulating in the community that is very difficult to kill. And it's particularly nasty if it makes it into the lungs. So imagine a bad flu year, or even a good flu year, combined with a new and hard-to-kill staph aureus, which could potentially lead to even higher death rates. Having seen a few normal people who get a relatively mild influenza and then proceeded to get a rapidly fatal secondary staph aureus pneumonia, I think it would be nice to prevent the flu. IV. The vaccine is for the elderly. Here's the list from the CDC in gruesome detail, all of them what should get the vaccine. 
all persons who don't want to get the flu hmm. or may transmit the flu to others. Hmm. This sounds like a number of people I know. And then all children aged 6 to 59 months, all persons greater than 50, children and adolescents who are at risk for developing Ray's syndrome, i.e. kids on chronic aspirin, women who will be pregnant during the flu season, pregnant women, unlike pregnant men, are more likely to die of influenza, adults and children who have chronic lung, heart, kidney, liver, bone marrow, or metabolic disorders such as diabetes, adults and children who are immunosuppressed, adults and children who have any condition that could compromise their ability to handle respiratory secretions such as spinal cord injuries, seizures, or other neurological disorders, residents of nursing homes and chronic care facilities, healthcare personnel, healthy household contacts of all the above. So do me a favor, drop me an email if you don't meet that list of criteria of people who should get the flu vaccine. It's available, of course, at the CDC site if you want to read it in detail. And I will hopefully remember to put it on my website as well. Number D, the government puts thimerosal-powered tracking devices in each vaccine. Well, that's true, but they're going to have to power their nanobots with some other source of power rather than thimerosal. And that technology is lagging behind. So at least for the short term, they will have to rely more upon inhaled nanobots from contrails than the tracking devices placed at the time of vaccine. But the current vaccine does have some thimerosal in it, and so the tracking devices should be effective as long as you're getting the flu vaccine, but may not be if you're getting other vaccines. Number JAV. What language is that? <laughs> I'm getting more obscure. Vitamin C, echinacea, or airborne will stop the flu. <laughs> Oh, God, that's so funny. It hurts. See my other podcasts for details. Vitamin C will be a future podcast topic. Number seven, cold weather can cause you to catch the flu. Cold weather leads people indoors, and it's crowding that causes you to be infected since you are near people who are coughing. That's how cold weather spreads the flu. It's crowding. By the way, if you cough, please cover your mouth. The reason your doctor has you turn your head and cough is so that she does not get sprayed with your mucus when she coughs. Cough is one of the best and most efficient ways to deliver infections. If you are coughing, or your patient is coughing, or your family member is coughing, you are spewing organisms out into the environment. If we were more considerate of others, like in the East, we would wear masks when we had a coughing illness, and we would probably cut back on the spread of all sorts of infectious diseases. It's being indoors and crowding that leads to the spread of infectious diseases. Are there other things that one can do to prevent influenza besides covering up when people around you are coughing? Well, don't inhale. It worked for President Clinton. But mostly stay away from them with cough. The flu vaccine can weaken your immune system and cause other illnesses. No, no, and yet again, no. Now, if you go online, you can find all sorts of reports of people that had the vaccine and shortly thereafter developed some unusual or odd illness. The anti-vaccine liars, as other people call them, go to ratbags.com for a wonderful website on this topic. Still one of my favorite anti-quack websites, and the email he gets are priceless. But people get the vaccine, and then they develop lymphoma or good pastures or some other illness, and of course they think that these god-awful illnesses occurred because of the vaccine. 
Now, association is not causation, and most of alternative medicine relies on the inability of most people to realize that life is full of random events, many of them horrible, for which there is no ready cause, and then they get better for no ready reason. A happens, then B happens, and then most people don't take the time to carefully consider whether or not A caused B, and take it as read that it does. People get sick and die, and there is no reason beyond a malicious deity who enjoys our suffering. My whole career, it is sad to say, relies on this precept. This gets down to the psychology of belief and the fact that humans find associations where none exist, a topic, I suppose, for a future podcast. But there is no biologic plausibility nor reason to suspect that in the influenza vaccine or any other vaccine or any other foreign protein could cause these peculiar effects. Now, there is one odd reaction that is associated with the flu vaccine, and that is Guillain-Barre, a disease where your nerves lose their covering and you lose your ability to move. It is rare. It occurs at a rate of about 0.04 cases per 100,000 vaccines, and the rates due to the vaccine have been steadily falling. It is rare, and your chance of getting flu and dying from flu is much higher than getting Guillain-Barre from the vaccine. Not getting the vaccine for fear of Guillain-Barre is the same as disabling your airbags in your car because occasionally people are injured when these airbags deploy. People are not good at assessing relative risk. I once had this patient I was treating for a heart valve infection he got because he shot up heroin and he drank about 24 bottles of beer a day and he smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. And he wasn't particularly clean, unfortunately, because he lived on the streets. And he came in to me short of breath and coughing in the middle of his therapy for his infection. And I said, I need to get a chest x-ray. And he said, I don't want a chest x-ray. And I said, how come? He said, I don't want to get the radiation dose. True story. But that little epiphany as to how people assess relative risk has been carried with me for my medical career. It is an interesting moral ethical debate, however. Is it good to have a rare bad effect in one person for the greater benefit of all? Or should we all be at the same but higher risk for random natural disease? Number nine, there are antibiotics for the flu. Well, kind of. There are three antivirals that can be used for influenza. There's ramididine and zimanivir and ulcitamivir. They, at best, shorten your illness by a day. That's it. 24 hours of less misery. So what would you rather do? Take an antiretroviral and have your two-week illness shortened by 24 hours, or take a vaccine and not be ill at all. That's the problem with being a doctor. I like to prevent disease rather than treat it. The scammers would have you believe that real doctors spend their time promoting illness to line their pockets in the pockets of their corporate masters and big pharma. The sad fact for me is that every year through the application of science, science, diseases are becoming less common. I have a profession that's slowly eradicating its own profession. Thank God Americans stay fat, don't exercise, and don't get their vaccines and take alternative medicines instead. I keep worrying about my college education of my children, but I think their payment is assured. As the old saying goes, an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure, or an ounce of perversion is better than a pound of pure. You can take your pick. And resistance occurs very rapidly to a rapidly multiplying antiretroviral. The influenza A that came out of China last year was 90% resistant to amantadine, in part because they put it in the water of their chickens so their chickens wouldn't get flu. And there's some resistance being described in avian influenza as well, so I would not rely 
upon our antivirals to treat your influenza. So that's it. Now you understand the flu and the vaccine. Get your flu vaccine every year. When avian flu hits, you will be taken off the list of those eligible to get the avian flu vaccine. The literature on this topic is huge, and probably the best way to find information is to go to PubMed and enter influenza. Some of the references are on my website, and the CDC has very nice summaries of influenza. This podcast has been brought to you as a side project of Pusware.com, where you will find the Persiflagers podcast, a bi-weekly review of infectious diseases where you can get type 1 CME, copyright 2007, Creative Commons. References and show notes are at quackcast.com, as well as old podcasts. Send your hate mail, spam, and questions about quackery to knowitall at quackcast.com. I will eventually answer your email. I don't know why I find answering email so onerous. The music is by my son when he was 12, improvising on the guitar. And now, if you'll excuse me, I need to go and get some vitamin C and echinacea to treat my stomach flu. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.